Welcome to episode 70 of Control the Controllables. I just want to share with you a couple of the reviews that we've had on Apple Podcasts over the last couple of weeks. The first one, Control the Controllables is shaping up to be the best performance-focused tennis podcast out there. In particular, Control the Controllables has a wealth of really strong advice for optimizing your mindset for consistent high-level performance. If you have a passion to grow and learn from elite-level practitioners, this podcast is an excellent resource, highly recommended. That, alongside some other fantastic reviews, motivates us to keep working hard each week to bring these podcasts to you. So a big, a big, big thank you. I also want to take a little bit of time to reflect that we now have 89 countries that are listening to this podcast, uh, which really does blow us away when we when we set this up five, six months ago. It was, we thought maybe a few people might listen, but the fact that it's now getting into all those countries. So a big welcome to you all, wherever you are in the world. Uh, we're loving bringing these podcasts to you. We really appreciate the feedback and the support. So a big thank you to you all. We have a really exciting guest today, uh, Simon Jones. Simon Jones worked at the LTA in many different capacities, many different roles, including pretty much second in command for the whole LTA at one point. He was working there for 31 years. He, he has since gone on to set up his own consultancy business in the high performance world in his head of head of coach education at Chelsea Football Club and he works with the Premier League so he has lots of discussion around the differences between sports. Uh, He really does open up, gives us lots of his opinions. People will have varying as we've talked about with Leon Smith and we've talked about in different podcasts over, over the series. People will always have varying ideas of of the LTA, it's almost on a hiding to nothing, um, different opinions, but it is great to hear Simon's views on that from when he was in the role, but also Simon's views on that since he's left the role. And I know that you're all going to enjoy this episode a lot. Without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Simon Jones. So Simon Jones, a, a massive welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm great, Dan. Thank you so much. Great to be on, actually. Uh, great to connect with you after such a long time, too. I've got a lot of memories of times when you were very young. <laughs> well, I must admit, the first thing that I thought when I saw you, I always I always feel young because it brings back, not that you look old, just because... <laughs> Because that it brings back so many memories for me as a as a player, you know, your, yourself and actually uh, uh, the the late Roger Cowell, which was terrible news a, a few weeks ago, um, and uh, you know, uh, really yourself and Roger are two quite iconic people for me when I think back to my from my to my younger days. So it's it's lovely to see you, and for for those listening, Simon Jones is quite a a popular name probably in the UK. So there's probably lots of Simon Joneses that you know. This is the Simon Jones that worked for the Lawn Tennis Association for 31 years uh, in many different capacities. 
and has obviously had a massive influence on British tennis over the last 30 years and then has, has moved out of tennis over the last 18 months and now has his own consultancy business performance minded and I think there's going to be some great things to get into from that of making that change from tennis into other sports Simon but to start off with what I've been really loving hearing from the guests is how tennis became your thing many a year ago. Yeah, well, well, it, well of course, it, I mean, even though I'm working in, in football and other sports right now, tennis is still my thing. It's something that you have for life. My father was a, you know, club tennis player and, you know, started to drag me down to the tennis club when, when I was, you know, really young. And I, I think if you were to say the one moment in time that, that really tennis captured my imagination, we, we went to Wimbledon and um, it was in the days when, you, you know, the parents would make the children dress up. So, so I was in some sort of really uncomfortable clothing and I watched it. Uh, I went to the number one court and watched a match with Ken Rosewall. Right. And when they were knocking up, the way in which he traded backhand slices uh, was mesmeric. I can remember it really, really well to this day. Um, and that was a key moment for me because then I thought, yeah, I quite like this game. So, you know, went through the usual route then of um, going, being fairly good in a club and the club sending me to county trials and then getting picked for the county and then playing in the region and then, you know, the rest history. But that's, that's how I got into the sport in the first place. My mum was an Olympic gymnast, so we had yeah. sporting, you know, sporting sort of heritage in the family. Um, and, you know, while she, would, she wouldn't know it, she was imparting uh, beliefs and values on me that really helped me progress in my sport as well. Um, so, yeah, those are my early roots in tennis, Dan. And doesn't it show the importance of, of getting kids in front of live sport and actually just seeing it and feeling it and, and inspiring and motivating and all those things? It is, yes. I mean, it, I mean they're, they're so exposed to it now with all of the, the different TV channels and everything that I hope that they're not, I hope it's not sort of dumbed down for them. Mm -hmm. um, of course, when I was younger, um, the, there wasn't all of those TV channels. So when you did see something, it was amazing. But I've got to say, I mean, you know, thinking about your question and, and the world that I'm in, the some, some of the key moments for me in my upbringing in my career were based around the coaches that I had yep. um, and you know looking looking back on it uh, when I'd started to sort of pick it up and show an interesting com competition there was a chap who was um, a, a coach that came over a, a chap called Brian Storr who was uh, you know a bit of a, a really good player in Staffordshire and he really helped me um, get the fundamentals of the game and then I worked with a coach called Eddie King who uh, was very inspirational for me and, and things. And then my next coach, Kevin Livesey, you know, when you look back on them, they create more than technical, tactical knowledge, but they create, you know, a, a love and an infatuation with our, with our sport. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I, when I, ever, when I talk to coaches, I mean, you know, there's a huge responsibility that they have around that aspect with young people. They probably don't, they probably don't realize. I certainly was not aware of it when I was a younger coach, but reflecting later on the impact that you can have on the lives of, uh, of young tennis players forever. Yep. Tennis is a sport forever, uh, is it, amazing. And, you know, I wish that those guys were still around that I could say that to. But. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, I always think that people fall in love with an experience, not necessarily a sport. 
so so the 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 ability for for coaches to give that experience at first and then and then that relationship and then all of those different things at first that's what that what they what they're buying into not necessarily I like to hit this ball or kick this ball or, or throw this ball. I don't know what you think on that. Yeah, well, absolutely, Dan. I mean, you know, and in any encounter, it's it's when you look back on it, it's how it made you feel rather than what it taught you was was the big was the big thing. I can't really remember what my coaches taught me technically or tactically, and anybody that knows my forehand will <laughs> will be smiling. <laughs> Uh, and saying they weren't very good coaches but uh but i can remember how they made me feel um and you know and i and, and years later i can remember those feelings very very vividly yeah as you know the technical tactical stuff it's just part of the just part of the journey so how you make people feel and the experience that you have yeah. uh, is the real is where the real impact is yeah i agree with you and I think it also brings up the thing in my head around, I guess, the world of instant gratification. You've just said that you've named three coaches there that maybe you haven't had the chance to, to show your gratitude to. And I think that would also be my messages to coaches listening. We, it can be a hard ride at times. You know, you feel you, you're giving the hours, you're putting in the time, you're spending time away from your family and people aren't thankful for it but it does tend to come later in life. You know, I remember getting a text message 11 years after I was coaching one boy, you know, and it came and said, Dan, you know what? Thanks for that work 11 years ago. You know, he's now gone on to this college or whatever it is. And that was down to the, the brilliant kind of grounding you gave him when he was younger. Mm, absolutely. And, you, you know, the, it's the tough thing as coaching is it's not just, it's not just the gratification, it's the feedback. Yep. Um, because you're normally in it because you're desperately trying to help people yep. uh, and you know young people are not really capable of giving feedback to you that they, they yep. sometimes you get some nice moments but but generally you have you you, you lack feedback um, and you lack that but it does you know I mean just speak I mean just coming on this uh, podcast for me now I mean I suppose the most interesting thing for me is to see how well you are doing you know, in your business, because that's the gratification I get. I found in my later years, it's amazing to see all of the young uh, boys and girls that I was, you know, touched upon when when we were younger, yeah. uh, how they forged careers in the sport. And nothing gives me more pleasure when I see one of those, you know, one of you lot do well yeah. or get some attention. And that's the that's probably the best thing of all. You're still a little bit too young, I guess, to see that. But when you get a bit older, you'll see the ones that you've you've tried to influence doing well, and it's very yep. satisfying. It really is. And that on that right there, because it, it's definitely in. I'm getting old, Simon. I'm forty now. Do you know what I mean? I'm like this is. Maybe. I'm just. Uh, do you know what's in my mind right now? Is I can I can almost hear it. I can hear Nirvana playing in our car at Orange Bowl. Driving from the hotel to the hotel to the center. I remember the songs and also Cindy Lauper, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. You know, I can like, it's, it's amazing that, and that's 20, that's 26 years ago. Yeah. 20, you know, 20, 26 years ago. But in terms of certainly one of my big success measures as, as an academy is, is just that, is, you know, giving them a, a sport 
that tennis is a vehicle for life. You know, it's going to take them through. They're going to pick up all of these skills. And that is the number one thing. And I think if we can install that passion and, and all of the skills that come from that, if I kind of, it's a bit of a, a large heading saying the LTA because you worked in so many different parts of that. But do you think that was a success measure across the organization or is a strong enough success measure across the organization that actually this is a sport for life this is something and how much maybe is that then clouded by i suppose the holy grail of the top 100 in the world i mean i mean when you start to talk to the lta obviously i was in sort of senior roles for 30 years i could talk for 20 days in a row about yeah. it but on on that particular subject um one of the things i believe very strongly in is that the the what we would know is the performance pathway. Yep. The, the real outcomes of the performance pathway are the workforce of the future for the next generation. So, yep. you know, if you were to take, I'll just give an, just a number out of the air. If you take a thousand young boys and girls that are following dreams and aspirations and funding and all of the things that we do, then maybe, you know, 1% of them might break into ATP or WTA. But, you know, 95 percent of them or 90 percent of them actually form the workforce of the future yeah. um, and are the ecosystem of the competitive sport for many, many more years to come. And uh, it was interesting for me. I did some research on this because you can imagine, in, you know, in my role in the LTA, I'm having to justify things and, and sort of present to boards and things. And I did some research on this and it was really interesting, Dan. I took the, uh, the junior British rankings from 20 years at every age group. Yep. Um, and I looked at where the players were now and what they were doing. And, and the British tennis is quite interesting because there's a British tennis membership. So there's an, a unique number. So you can track them. It, you, yep. you, you can get the data. And what I found was that looking at the dimensions of coaching, domestic competitors and officials. So I looked at those three workforce people, those boys and girls that were in the top 100 British British rankings as a junior. So perhaps the top 100 under 14 or under 15 there were more people involved in the sport than there were between 100 and 200. Yep. And there were more people involved in that category than there were 200 to 300 and then 300 to 400. And I did it across every age. And what I came to the conclusion was, was that the higher you got within the sport, the more likely you were to generate an, uh, a business or be part of the workforce later on that okay. gave back to the next generation. Um, so, you know, that that made me really, you know, that I've always, you know, if you take the national championships and you look at 64 young boys and girls on the first day battling out, they're all talented. They're all yeah, good, yeah. you know, uh, and, and just because you sort of one wins it and you look a little bit more for them for different reasons, they're all good players and they all form the future workforce. So I was acutely aware of that. It wasn't one yeah. or the other. Yeah. Um, and, and you and I are examples of that, Absolutely. actually. Yeah, you and I are good examples of that. We've play, probably played at different levels, but we're in the, we, we're in the business and yep. giving back and yep. there's millions of others. So yep. the performance pathway is not just about the champion players. It is about the champion players, but it's not just about them. I love that. I love that. And I... And I... I think that's great for people to hear as well. You know, I think it's a, it's it's such a strong message in it, Simon. I guess the the question that then jumps into my head, 
why do you think the ones that got higher tend to then, is that through association, positive association with the sport? You know, why is it that you think that they, they stay in the sport longer or, or, or more successful or however we want to put it? What is competitive players? How, how, yeah, yes. So what you said is when they were in the certain ranking that they'd gone on and had businesses within tennis and been part of the workforce right. at a higher number, why do you think it is that the, the better players by ranking tend to have that experience after um, they're playing? What a what a great question that is. Um, I mean, I think the 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 more you compete and the more opportunities that you have, the more you see, the more you network. Um, yeah. and, and certainly going into coaching, having a, you, you know, and I'm not saying you have to be a good player to be a, a good coach. That's that that would be a misinterpretation of what I'm about to say. Yeah. But if you've had a tennis is a sport where if you have had a competitive career, whether it be as a junior or a senior. It, it, it does tend to uh, give you uh, a feel for coaching uh, and, a, and a love of the game. Now, you could also argue that the reason that they were better in the first place was because they had a, an inbred love of the game. Yeah. So therefore they played more and they got a higher ranking. So I don't know if it's the, you know, the, I don't know which way around it is, yeah, yeah. but the facts, the facts stood up. So um, I, I would suggest the fundamental driver of success in anything is passion and love for it. Yep. So whether that made them good players or whether they got the love and the passion yep. because they were good players, difficult, difficult to yep. say, but fundamental principles there. But if you throw your day-to-day -day passion into something, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, you will always get a return on that investment is a strong belief of mine. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's one of the really lucky life skills that I've been given that tennis has given me is it's enabled me to have something that I'm passionate to do something that I'm passionate about. Um, and the value on that is, um, you know, is, imme is immense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, that, I hope that many more people do that in tennis. Yeah. But I, again, and just to talk to the, to the listeners right now, because I know there's a lot of tennis players that are listening to these podcasts it, it, it can feel like a tough road out there at times. And, you know, I get it. I get this with players and parents where they say, well, what's the point if I'm not going to be top 100? Or what's the point if we I'm not going to make money out of the sport through playing? But there absolutely is a point and there's a reason, you know, and you, you keep doing it. And you've, if you choose that pathway to go, it's your different education system, really, that you're choosing to do. And if you do that to 24, 25, 26, 30, the longer you're doing it, if you're doing it right and you're picking up the right messages, I've always thought then more opportunities open. And I like that your your yeah. figures seem to back that up. 100% Dan. And, if, you know, if I just pick up on what your expression, doing it right, um, what that involves for me is not making unreasonable sacrifices that are not consummate with your level. Yeah. But, I, but I would absolutely encourage young men and women to go as far as they can in the sport. And if you're ranked uh, 180 or 240 or 350, you are an unbelievable tennis player absolutely. that can, can get a whole life of satisfaction out of that level. Uh, and, uh, you know, to feel the value of that as opposed to, oh, I didn't make the top 100, I'm no good. You know, I mean, if you're like to get to 300 in the world in tennis, you've, you've got to be just a phenomenal tennis player. 
um, and immensely committed. I mean, tennis is so difficult to play compared to other sports. Uh, the barriers are huge. So anybody getting to 300 in the world, never mind their technical and tactical skills, the resilience and the commitment uh, that they've shown to get to that stage. You, I mean, you and I both know, no yeah. money if you don't win, yeah, yeah. lose every week, grotty tournaments, yeah. searching around for flights, insecure when you lose early. I mean, you, we know all these things. So it's really tough. So the skills that you you develop at that level are just immense. And yeah. um, I would always encourage everybody to play as long as they can for as far as they can, but without making ridiculous sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. You know, don't go to the bank and borrow a hundred thousand pounds and be in debt for the rest of your life because you've got a dream you're going to play grand slams. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, no, no, absolutely. There, there is a there is always a line, isn't there? Yeah. So maybe some some people step over it at times, but uh, that's also part and parcel of it. Uh, it was one of the things I wanted to talk about later, but you've kind of led into it in terms of what you're saying about the difficulty of tennis, and and obviously, I think in our tennis bubble. <laughs> we can just always really see the difficulty of tennis. Tennis is so tough. Tennis is so tough. Now that you're having a bit more of a comprehensive view of other sports, how, how do the other sports compare? Obviously, they've got their own challenges, but how do they compare in terms of, I guess, difficulty, um, similarities, those things? Yeah. Well, the, well um, so, so my, main, uh, my main work right now is, is in football. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the roles that I've got is I'm head of coach development at Chelsea Academy. Yep. Uh, and, we're, you know, very successful academy. They've got, if anybody that knows their football will know that we've got millions of pounds worth of players in the first team and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the ecosystem of football is very, very different to tennis. So if you are selected as a, uh, as a young player uh, to come into the academy or through the foundation, you will come in and you'll have your coaching provided for you for free. Yep. Um, you'll have kit provided you for free. Uh, you'll have match program provided you for free. Uh, we'll provide, you know, if you need medical care, we'll provide medical care for you for free. Yep. Um, and, you know, and there is opportunities to develop as an individual. We have a football education program, which is, is actually misnamed a little bit. It's actually life education for these young children. And, you know, we have experts working all for free. It's all provided for free. Uh, and then as you progress up the ranks and then as you move through the phases and you perhaps get a professional contract, you know, the equivalent of some of our tennis players that are working off, let's say, minus 20,000 a year because that's what it costs them to play, a, a young footballer may be on that week. So, or, or a month or, or, or something like that. So the yeah. ecosystem is very, very, very different. Uh, and, and that alone makes tennis immensely, immensely hard, hard to play. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, those, uh, you know, our, our players now and the players of the past that's sticking at it, people have got to see that. They've got to see the sacrifices that they're making um, because it's very, very different. And, you know, team, team sports, they're set up differently or, you know, to in individual sports. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the fun, the, the ecosystem provides the support for them. Whereas in tennis, if you, you know, if you don't win, you, you, you lose it, you're not winning any money. Um, 
and you know that's hard um, if we talked about the difficulty of the technical tactical skills of tennis the amount of time you have to play to master the skills to reach mastery the amount of repetition the amount of practice um, again is right at the top end yeah it's right at the top end um you know, football, for example, the, the pros, Chelsea, they, they, the, the training is very intense. There's a lot of intensity in it, so therefore the durations are less. Um, but they're nowhere near hit the training hours that their equivalent in tennis would have to hit. Yeah, if I share a small story, actually, Simon, there's, there was a guy, ironically called Lewis Guy, who he was like a number, he, he was number 40. His number was number 40 for Newcastle United. And he he was living. Remember Nicky Peel? Oh, remember yeah. Nicky? Yeah. So he was he was living with Nicky Peel and his family as like part of I guess the academy at Newcastle. And then he started to make match day squad. He then he he played a couple of European nights back in the days when Newcastle were in Europe. And anyway, he one day he came to Edinburgh to one of the futures events. And obviously, being a big Newcastle fan, I jumped on that and you know had a good was having a good chat with him. And and he said to me. Something that really stood with me. He said, in his five years at Newcastle, he had never not been home for neighbours. And <laughs> neighbours was 135. Yeah. yeah. So, so he, and he was saying, and I was telling him all about the tennis, and, you know, he just couldn't believe the amount of hours and, and the, the, the constant, the, the relentlessness nature of, of the sport of tennis. Yeah, it is. It's 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 relentless, and you you know you you have to be able to have a mindset to, to do that. Yeah, and to put those hours in. Yeah, both as a player and a coach. You know, I yeah. think you know the, we're talking about the players here, but the, you know, it's tough for the coaches as well. Yeah, but does that make? Because this is another big strong belief of mine. Does that not make tennis players incredibly employable at the end of it? Um, yes, I, do, I absolutely uh, agree with you. I think the um, the, the the qualities that uh, tennis players develop are very very transferable, yeah. very transferable. And um, you know there is one there is one player. I mean, it's not right to mention his name, but uh, people on the call will probably work it out. <laughs> uh, but there was one player who played Davis Cup for us. Yep. Good player and um, went for an interview outside tennis. Went into uh, the the uh, city, into the city. Yeah. Um, and in his interview, he said to the uh, interviewer that he'd been running his own business for ten years, uh, yep. and he contextualised his whole his whole tennis career around uh, running his own business. Yeah. About how he'd had to do all you know, put a business plan together and had to, you know. Do all that, do all the bits, and and he got the job. And of course, he was he he was smart enough to match it to the skills that the company required. But you're yeah. basically running your own business when you're a tennis player. Yeah, that needs to be educated. Yeah. You know, um, we we will call him Jamie just for the sake of it. I don't know who you're talking about, but let's I, I, but, I, but, <laughs> <laughs> just for the just for the sake of the story. I, no, I didn't say that. that <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we, but we do. But that is a game where we it's it's something we, we're trying to bring together at the academy is, is exactly that to try and get these players to understand you know what, their value sorry, adds. Sorry to interrupt, but you know, one of the value adds that, that tennis players have the most that they don't realize is they know how to work. Yeah, yeah. They, they know how to apply themselves and put in a shift 
yeah. and, do the, and do the work because you can't exist in tennis unless you know how to work. Yeah. And, and it's a basic skill that in the workplace at all different levels is sometimes underestimated. Yeah. And, and, you know, certainly working across people development roles in different areas that I do now, I see that a lot more than I ever saw it when I was in tennis. Yeah. And what about the similarities? Do you see, do you see many similarities across sports? Um, I see a lot of similarities in coaching, Dan. Um, You know, I see, uh, I mean, what I do now, I'm working in football, I do a little bit in basketball and do something in education as well and um, touched on rugby a bit. So I'm working, but mainly football. Um, You know, fundamentally, uh, coaching is coaching. um, And a lot of the similarities that that the tennis coaches have is the same with the football coaches. Um, it, the only difference for me is the is the what is the technical content, yeah. but how you do it and why yeah. you do it is the same across all sports. How you plan, yeah. uh, attention to detail, how you progress sessions, how you communicate with players, how you motivate players, how you set clear objectives, how you feed back against it, how you um, inspire innovation. You know, I could go on forever, as you can yeah, tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, all of those things apply across all areas. Yeah. The, the actual content of, um, you, know, the, the, in, you know, in sporting context, the sports technical things, that's obviously different. But, but the, big, the big thing I notice in the similarities between football and tennis, that they're, they're actually very similar yeah. because, you, you know, the coaches come from the same backgrounds. A lot of ex-players who yep. who've played and now want love the game and want to go into coaching have a great knowledge of the sport itself. Um, the, the sport is very um, competition orientated, like tennis. You know, the matches are the things lead to the matches. Um, we're very much uh, psychologically and tactically orientated, uh, and we're very much winning mentality orientated in tennis. It's very it's very similar. Yep. Uh, where tennis is slightly more tech, technically biased than football is, yeah. but that's something that football is learning. I, I have to say, and I don't mean that patronizing to the sport, but more and more people are looking more and more at the, the finer technical details of the way you, you, you coach in football, um, but very similar. And, um, you know, it's probably because of the background of the coaches and the way it's set up. Um, I see, you know, I see a lot of similarities. And if I went to you right, Simon, you're going to go back into your role at the LTA that you had 18 months ago. You now know what you know, having 18 months out. What would you take back with you? Um, it's a good question. I, I, I often think about that. Um, I think from a... Uh, co- so when I, fin- when I finished at the LTA, Dan, I was working with, with coaches. Yeah. Uh, not, I was not close to players. Um, I, was, I was working with coaches and I think the the big thing the big three things that I work on with coaches now in in, um, in my world I would definitely take them back in and they are uh, creating the vulnerability yep. um, to to generate curiosity innovation and empathy uh, the critical thinking skills to not jump to opinions and just take facts at face value. Uh, and also the ability to reflect, um, having time to reflect, to sit back and have people helping them reflect. So the, one of the last things that I did at the LTA was to uh, Im- implement a, men- uh, a mentor training program. Yeah. 
um and you know that that was sort of that i was going in that direction when i was in tennis Mm -hmm. but i've seen the value of these those three things now in in the top coaches and you know i i I, I have the privilege to work with some really high level people um and the higher level they are the more vulnerable they are more curious they are the it, it fascinates me that that if i get in front you know get in front of a coach that's won a league championship and the coach says from a different sport says to me well, what do you think you know they have enough vulnerability to ask what i think and i go well i don't know i'm not from your sport and they go no no tell me what you think yeah. um and that's been really in, insightful for me is the is that vulnerability of really top people and you have to create the environment where it's safe for people to open up uh, and and you know have confidence that they're valued i think that is really been very very insightful for me like it simon you you're giving us some uh, you're giving us some nuggets here simon this is <laughs> this is already a brilliant podcast um in terms of if again for those listening and also for myself actually what over your 31 years at the lta can you tell us about some of the roles that you were in um, well, I started off, uh, so my first role with the LTA was I was an uh, under-14 um, age group captain, yep. and that's where you and I spent some time, Dan. Absolutely. Um, it was, you know, I mean, it's a career highlight for me to see you and David Sherwood win Tarbs doubles. Yeah. Really was. I mean, I think you beat Gonzalez and Correa in the final. Like something, was it like- Well, Simon, seen as you asked. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to tell me what the score was now. Well, what I will tell you, because it was also, it was my career highlight. Yeah. <laughs> 1994 never got better. You know, <laughs> I also think I got five Valentine's cards that year as well. I don't think I've had one since, you know, it was, it, it was, it was downhill from there, but we actually in qualify, we were in qualifying and we actually beat Andy Ram and his partner in qualifying. That's yeah. then first round. We we beat Xavier Melise and Olivia Rockus. Right. <laughs> Quarterfinals, we beat Artem Deripasco and Marat Safin. Yeah. Semi-finals, some dodgy Swedish guys who never went on to have a big name, which which is a shame because it would make my story better. And then in the final, it was Balaz Verez from Hungary and Fernando Gonzalez. Ah, right. Wow. Well, well, thanks you for reminding me of that because I, I never realised I, I had so many coaching wins. <laughs> we, our, our CVs have just got better. <laughs> but, but, but a quick story as well from that, and I don't know if you, obviously you did a lot of years. I did one tarps. I'm sure you did lots of tarps. So it, it's, and I always think that with coaches, I say that to the players a lot. We get lots of goals. You get you get one goal, you know. So sometimes you, the intensity of the of the thought is a bit stronger. But Anna Kornikova, who was she was on the court next to us when we played our final of tarps, and obviously at the time she was this big, you know, the new kind of hot thing on on the scene. Um, and we were practicing, and little Mark Hilton, who again's been on the podcast, and you guys will know as, as Dan Evans's coach now, he was about four foot nothing, and Anna Konakova came on the practice court after and she shouted over to us, hey, English guys, pass me the ball. And Hilt picked up the ball 
and, and tubed it about four courts down. And we just thought this was the funniest thing ever, you know, but it, 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 it's funny the things that you remember. Oh, I definitely remember all those great stories. Uh, yeah, it's very funny. This is not the forum to tell you. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, so it's, getting back to your question. So, yeah, you know, I, did the, I, I did was under 14 coach and then, then the Rover program started. Um, and the Rover program was, uh, you know, obviously sponsored by Rover Cars um, um, and really uh, driven by Mark Cox and uh, the late, great Paul Hutchins, who we all, yeah. um, you know, love very much. Um, uh, but the Rover program was the LTA's first approach at a systematic um, a attempt to up our game with player development. And, you know, I can remember at the time being the under 14 coach, I was getting to travel a lot. Uh, and it was something that I did forever, actually, was I was constantly understanding what other countries did. Um, it was fascinating for me when I first did my under 14 trip to speak to the Swedish, Swedish coaches, for example. Yeah. You know, find out how much their kids play and how many tournaments they play and you know questions that the coaches of today will always ask but i i really realized that in great britain we were a long way behind the other nations in in what we were doing in 1990 and uh, you know particularly training times so the rover program was an attempt to get our young players like yourself and and all of the other scholars to to play more than twice a week was to play every day and, and and to have a physical training program and to practice with you know have goals and practicing and you know all of the all of the simple stuff so that was a fascinating phase for me in 1990 to be at the start of a systematic program and uh, as again you mentioned you know bless him roger cowell and mark cox and myself were the three people involved in that program at the start and then uh, you know we had the, the the tennis school with Ian Barkley and Olga Moritzova as well as part of the Rover program so <clears throat> I did that for five years uh, and then in 1995 the uh, the, the team that we, the team was that I was captaining we won the world championships mm -hmm. um, which you would remember you know Hilton and Dixon and absolutely and uh, I know that you've had and Alan Mackin. I know you've yeah. had Dick, Dicko on the on the yeah. podcast, and you know I, I was sitting on the chair when he completely demolished Leighton Hewitt. <laughs> not, not incredible. He didn't just beat him; he completely yeah. demolished him, yeah. and um, you know that was amazing. Uh, but then by by 1995, I was I, I was really looking to to not be travelling around everywhere all the time. So I went to the University of Bath and um, the, my boss at the time, Richard Lewis, said, to, um, why don't we start trying to create some sort of academy or centre of excellence here? Um, so when I went, when I started at the University of Bath, there was uh, some outdoor courts and a gym and, and nothing. And, you know, that was a really lovely time of my career because I spent 10 years there uh, developing what many of the listeners will know as the sports training village. Um, with, with the with the with the um, facility there, which is marvellous, and uh, you know it was fantastic for me after all these years to see the Fed Cup played there last year, because when we started it, that was one of the aspirations. Yeah. Um, and as you said earlier in the podcast, it comes later. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, so so I did that for ten years, and at the same time, I was working at Loughborough as well with um, some great coaches there, Leighton Alfred and Mark Taylor. So we, I was running both those academies, and then changes in the LTA and changes in leadership, changes in programs. Um, uh, then I, those programs changed and I uh, moved to the National Tennis Centre. Um, and then for 16 years, I was uh, sort of in roles like head of performance support and 
you know, managing programs and uh, managing people and trying to make what what I sort of pioneered as, as, as an interdisciplinary approach, trying to get everybody to work together. Yep. Um, uh, and interestingly, all these experiences I've taken now into my next world, and they've been they've been very useful for me. Yeah. Um, and then I finished off uh, as sort of looking after the coach education for performance coaches. So, you know, I had a had a wide variety of roles and lots of fantastic experiences. I spent four and a half years on the executive of the LTA, so I got to understand a lot about the, the wider business and leadership, and um, you know, worked with some great people and. Uh, you know, have to say, uh, fantastic experience for me. It was a fantastic education, um, which I'm which I'm now able to use in different worlds. Yeah. It's tough for me now. What the next question is, Simon, because it's like you, you've opened the door to lots of topics. You know, and it's like I can I can feel my head going. Do I go down that topic? Do I go down that topic? And and but I think definitely something that that is is in my mind and. Over, over that period, and it's probably a difficult question, but I, I'm gonna, I want you to give it a go if you can, is what was the best approach? You know, and, and I know people are so important and all of those things, but I guess if I break it down into centralized approach and decentralized approach as a, as a governing, governing body, in your opinion, which one was the best and why? Uh, okay, it's, it's, not, it's not such a difficult question to answer, um, actually, Dan, because having, you know, done bits and bobs and, and being abroad and seeing what other nations were doing, um, I, I would say over that period of time, the, uh, the, the, because the LTA is very dominant in British tennis performance, it, you know, it's uh, because of the, the, the cost and everything, it's the only, it's the only governing body, it, it is dominant. It, it probably shouldn't be as dominant, but it is It is really dominant. And over that period of time, it did certain initiatives that if you put them all together at once, you'd have a really good program. Um, and they, they did some really good things and some really great people. And I never met anybody in the LTA that wasn't passionate about doing well, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I never met anyone that was tanking. Yeah, They're all trying to do for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, but there were times when we managed to string them together to create some impact. And, and the sort of things I'll, I'll say to you, so the, the key drivers for me in performance success in British tennis uh, is all around the idea that the LTA should feed the ecosystem of the sport and not interfere with it. Um, so it's very expensive to play as a young player very very expensive so when you're a parent of a nine ten year old that's that's quite good you're looking at a chasm of cost so when the lta put in a program that that funded a lot of individual coaching for those young players at that age um and also did you know funded their uh, their centers a lot for the very young kids what that enabled the parents to do was to work to invest themselves with confidence because they knew that they were getting support. So, uh, you know, things I, I could point to, you know, the, there was a lot of criticism of the matrix funding, for example. Um, and, and whatever, whatever the LTA does, it gets criticized for, by the way. So, you know, but, but fundamentally what the matrix did is it provided stimulus for 400 young children uh, to be able to 
pay their coach to, to fund their lessons with their coaches. And of course, it provided opportunities for their coaches now to work with talented players on a more regular basis. Um, so that was a really good thing. Um, I think the the um, I, I love the idea that when you look at these players that come through, so Liam Brody is a player I just I'd point to, and his coach is a guy called Dave Samuel, who you'll know. And, and Dave Samuel is always a guy that impresses me so much with his belief that he keeps in players for, at, let's say, out of juniors into seniors. And Liam's a great example of someone that's been able to hang in the game for that period of time. So linking that point, I would say that the tournament bonus scheme that the LTA ran was a real benefit because it allowed young players to come out of juniors and to be able to play for earn money more so than they would have, stay in the game and actually reach heights that they probably wouldn't have done before. So that's another element. Yeah. Uh, the specific approach to doubles was really good um, because we've won, you know, we, we've won so many doubles rubbers in, in um, uh, Davis Cup. And, you know, they've, they've been a big thing for us. And it's great to watch our doubles players on the scene. And, you know, investment in Louis Kaye, you know, the audience will be very familiar with Louis Kaye as a great doubles coach. So that was a good, that was a good thing. I don't believe that when a player is 16 or 17, that an individual coach can do what's necessary with the funding framework. So, you know, if you look at, um, if you go to France, for example, a lot of it was centralized in, in that age, simply because of the huge costs. Yeah. But when the individual coach was fully involved in that progress, in program, but it was centralized, that was the answer in that little section for me. So, uh, and the, the final part, the final bit I'll add into it is in all my years traveling around, what I noticed more than ever was that all the successful nations had a fantastic club structure. Yeah. Um, and I was very excited with, with the time when we started that, what, we, what we knew as the High Performance Centre Network, where 22 uh, centres around the country were receiving significant funding to allow their coaches to start to earn a living purely in what we would call competition performance tennis uh, and to reduce the costs significantly for the young players going there. And for five or six years, that, that was good. And we saw some real progress in that area. Um, but regretfully, they drop a what? They drop off. And, you know, it, it's like a chain with links dropping in and out. And um, I think if you strung all those good things together, you'd have one hell of a programme. But that's the yeah. ecosystem of our sport. Yeah. Is the word performance not one of the issues on that, though? So as somebody who I worked in one of the high performance centres, and let me try and get this across in the right way and articulate this correctly. So we had to run that program in order for that to work financially. We had to have numerous players who weren't, well, they certainly weren't high performance. They probably weren't performance. And, and I want to get into that word in, it, in a minute as well. So we, but the club that we were at had a club program a development program and then we had the performance program whereas actually for me where how it works in france as an example in spain it just is a tennis program <laughs> it's a tennis club and it's a tennis program and and okay you might be able to then hide some costs by funding within internally your club 
with the with the some of the better players who were playing a little bit more but we were never able to do that because that that was it was all so separate and and, and I guess my second point on that is it's also why I believe that quite a lot of tennis players stop playing because they the parents get disillusioned or the players get disillusioned that they're not performance anymore or they're not on this on this pathway anymore I can totally relate to what you say, and uh, and you, you know have a lot of empathy with it. Um, I, what what I would say is, is taking a higher view of it is a, these programs they take a long time to evolve to where they should get to, and you know I, I, you know I think you've been there ten years in Soto now. Am I right? Ten and a half years. Yeah. Ten and a half years, and I'm sure you would know that how you've evolved since the start to the end. And, Absolutely. And in that period, you may have changed the language that you work. You may have operated differently and learned learned from mistakes and 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 developed it. I'm sure in 15 years' time, it'll be even better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I don't think that you can get everything right just straight away. And um, you know, I think that's something that uh, that the, the LTA are sort of struggle with a bit is that they introduce something and people expect it to be perfect straight away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, the academy that I work in in Chelsea. I mean, honestly, uh, guys listening to it's incredible environment. It's incredible elite environment um, with you know a production line of top expensive footballers. But it's 18, 19 years in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm sure that the academy director, he would look back and think some of the mistakes he made at, at the start. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not avoiding your question about labelling, Dan, because I, yeah. I, I do have some sympathy with it and empathy. And there's a lot of research around the word talent, for example, now. Yeah. There's a lot of research to say that talent is not a good word to use, and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there are people that know more about that. But I think generally the, the, um, the, the softening of the labels that take away pressure off people yeah. um, is a good thing. Yeah. But it shouldn't be at the expense of the opportunity that they get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, you, you know, in the defense of the LTA systems, not anybody individual, when you when you sort of put up a high performance center, it's being attacked from year one because of a word. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, we need to give these things years to develop an industry yeah. that, that that can mature and then change those yeah. things. So that's that's my sort yeah. of thing. But, but Simon, why does... And, and this is, it's, I guess it's the million dollar question. Why does the UK need to rely on the LTA, LTA so significantly for that? Because that does happen naturally in a lot of countries yeah, anyway. And I think if you look at the economies of you know, the economies of sport in different countries, they're all very, very different. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, the economies of tennis in our country is, is, is very different to, let's say, Spain, for example. Um, you, you know, the... the I mean, the whole ecosystem, the competition from other sports, the cost of facilities, um, you know, the, the, the daylight hours, the weather, uh, all conspires to create a certain situation yeah. that creates a certain economy. Um, and, and therefore, government intervention is required in, in, in certain professions rather more than others. Um, that's not to say that's an excuse. I'm, you know, I'm not saying, oh, we can't do it unless the LTA give you money. Absolutely not saying that whatsoever. Yeah. 
um, but it does require uh, in in order to for the for the young boys and girls to train and practice as much as they can, and to give coaches a, a reasonable lifestyle that's respectable. The the money that it takes, it needs a little bit of subsidy. Is that not because that's what we're used to though? Possibly, you know, yeah. But you know, because if I if I even take if, I, I go to the word accountability and and I've learned to absolutely, it's almost like a drug to me now, that word, you know, like I love being just absolutely accountable, you know, like there's not, there's, we just don't receive a penny here outside, outside of what we have to, we have to make. Yeah. And there's something really um, invigorating about that. There's something very difficult about that. But I would, I would say that now when we have British players come in, the first question is around a deal, around, uh, you know, being funded, around being supported, scholarships. Whereas we would have like a, a Russian come in and go, how much does it cost? Okay. But, and then to absolutely demand like every last little bit from you, you know, and I, I guess if the rug was pulled and we didn't have Wimbledon and we didn't have this, this big pot, I just wonder whether what would happen is that maybe the, the cream would rise to the top and you'd find these incredible innovators, entrepreneurs who, who could come through and, and, and with that almost forced accountability a little bit more. Yes, absolutely. And I really, um, I, you know, I really have empathy with what you're talking about there, Dan. And, and as you know, I'll be, be on that line of thought about yeah. its accountability and um, self motivation and you can do it if you you know you, you can overcome barriers and and then and, and funding does create a, a negative aspect to to it uh it's quite a science though isn't it i mean you know we we're, we're, we're seeing now um in society where the government government intervention is absolutely necessary and yeah. um I, I it can be done in many many different ways though yeah. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't like entitlement culture or, or indeed anything that creates uh, creates an entitlement culture. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I look, it's, a, it's a big it's a big question. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I do have empathy that you don't want things that create the wrong behaviours. Yeah. stimulate the wrong behaviors yeah. and you do want things that stimulate the right behaviors yeah. but if i've got a talented young boy and he's got the choice to play football or tennis his parents are looking at going to the football club and getting free coaching free kit free matches for five or six years yeah. whereas tennis he's looking at 25 pounds a day and 150 pounds a weekend to stay in a travel lodge to play a tournament you know, I, I'm thinking. I whilst I've got empathy with with the, with your your values and I share them, there is something there that is, mm -hmm. you know. I don't, and, and honestly, I don't think we've ever answered it correctly. <laughs> yeah. So then, my next question would be: could, Does any federation get it right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, some countries seem to be a bit better than us. I mean, I, I, I tell you what I do like. I mean, go, you know, it's very topical at the moment, isn't it? Because Italy are doing quite well in the French and yeah. you know, the French players have come through and you know, Spanish are doing well as always. And, and, and the old domestic competition uh, um, argument has raised its head again. Yeah. Um, 
and, and you know, perhaps here, perhaps, let, let's, so let's talk a little bit wider about the funding issue. So perhaps what happens in Italy is that their resources go into providing competition where the players have to earn the, the opportunity. So accountability, accountability. Accountability. So, so perhaps what I'm saying here, Dan, is that's perhaps why I like the tournament bonus scheme, because in a way that's funding, but it's a level of accountability. And I think, Simon, that was the best thing from from relatively on the outside, but probably working with some players through that. That's the best thing I remember in the, in the last 20 years. I thought that was the best way to go about it. So it is funding. It's, Absolutely. It's, you know, when the, when the decision makers look at the budgets on their desk and they put X amount of money towards players, it's funding. Yep. Um, but it creates, it stimulates a different, a, a specific response. So I suppose my argument, what I'm trying to say here is that it, it does need that, but how you do it to create the right response is, is the subtlety. And I'm not sure we've really always found the right answer for that. Yeah. And then probably the next question is, is it possible for any federation to get it right? Certainly, I, I, I personally don't think it's possible for the LTA to get it right, given, given, the, given the fact that they might, might do the right, right things by some people. But the bottom line is there's too many entitled people <laughs> that are always going to bring them down. You know, so it's, it's almost a hide into nothing. And I'm sure you've experienced that. Yeah, but, but also interesting is you have to, one has to take the, the broader view of the governing body. It's not just there to produce performance. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and only a percentage of its funding is directed at supporting, you know, the performance pathway. It has a wider responsibility. And, you know, the current LTA um, is really trying to open the sport up to audiences that probably that otherwise wouldn't be connected to tennis. Um, and, you know, Scott Lloyd has, a, you know, this vision of opening the sport up and uh, getting people to, it's not just traditional audiences. And that's expensive to do that, you know. Yeah. So it, it's, you could link it to the performance pathway and, 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 you know, the business cycle of the sport. But a governing body has many, many different uh, priorities. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, of course, British tennis, the, the public judge British tennis on how good we do at Wimbledon, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is tough for our players. Um, yeah. But it does have a wider responsibility. And, you know, when you talk about accountability, you, the, the way you enjoy it, Dan, when I go into football, in a football club, they only have one priority. Yeah, yeah. And they're totally accountable and, and it's very commercial. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, it, it, is a, it is a different world, but, the, but governing bodies are, have a wider brief and a wider responsibility than, than just the, their performance pathways. To move on to a couple of lighter topics, I feel like I'm- Please. I'm, <laughs> I like, feel I've left it behind. <laughs> I can see I can see the anguish in your face, face Simon. I've, I've got to get, I've got to move. I've got to shift, I've got to shift. I hope this is an audio, <laughs> not a video. <laughs> it is, fortunately. When you stuck your middle finger up at me a couple of minutes ago, that won't come up. <laughs> um, what's your your greatest experience, or your a couple of your greatest experiences in tennis? Um, well, well, I think I mean uh, you know uh, so lot, lot, lots of fantastic. Ex I mean, fantastic experiences. We talked earlier about winning in tarbs and, you know, and uh, seeing coaching players, captaining players that were playing in final of major tournaments. And we won the world juniors. 
um, I very much enjoyed the uh, the project of of getting the sports training village up. You know, that's a that's a, I'm very proud of that. Um, I, I think it was was marvelous to see the the team that you know the guys that were working with me at the National Tennis Center. They won when they won the Davis Cup. That was you know I I, I was actually we uh, teary eyed when we won the Davis Cup having been in it so long and seeing how hard they all worked in that, that was amazing. Um, I think from a career perspective though, there's, there's several key points, key, key turning points for me. And, and one of them was uh, early in the Rover program. And I don't know if you were there, Dan, it might've been a bit before your time. Um, I, we, we did some work at Bruguera's in Spain. Yep. Um, and we went down to Bruguera's and I think I spent three or four weeks um, working in the academy in, in Bruguera's. And that was a turning point for me because it totally opened my my eyes to a different way of training tennis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I then started the academy in the University of Bath, that was, it was, I tried to implement their philosophy, that, that sort of philosophy there. So, so that was a turning point for me. Um, and, you know, it was a really, really big moment. But what was it in the philosophy from Brigueras that you, that you took? Well, it was uh, um, training twi training twice a day, yep. uh, physical training twice a day, um, um, more uh, static repetition. You know, it was clap. It, I mean, I'm, I, it, when when people say oh Spanish Spanish drills, and they they whack the Spanish drills out in the morning and they play sets in the afternoon, it's it's not that. It's way more than that. Mm. It was sophisticated thinking. Yeah. Uh, on an in, on an individual basis about how to develop players um looking at looking at the movement in a greater way than i'd ever seen looked at before yeah. so it was the legs more than the, the arms to to be simple about it um it was this head heart legs thing yeah. uh, you know it was where i was int introduced to the you know the head heart legs concept yeah. um and you know the passion and the way in which they move and the way in which they fight yeah. um was something that came across to me a lot but really, you know, the intelligence of the program, the intelligence of the, their, their conditioners and the way they, work, they worked very specifically on individuals around their, uh, you know, specific uh, needs, you know, physically, the detail that they went into, the amount of analysis the coaches did. Because at the time, we, our, our coaches uh, were, were all working uh, independently. You know, most coaches were working as individual coaches in their clubs and they didn't, you know, and I, I went down there and I saw teams of coaches and ex-players talking about tennis all the time, yeah. developing different ways to do it. So it's a very, very different culture. I, I yeah. really was quite influenced by that. But, you know, I had the great moments. I remember I was, um, <laughs> funny one for me was I, 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 I ran a, a competition, um, the, the Maureen Connolly um, Yeah. I was the sort of the match director for that for, for quite a few years and the, we wanted to do upgrade it and we we put it alongside the um uh, the tournament at eastbourne mm -hmm. um and uh, many of the uh, people listening to this will know eastbourne and the court in front of the clubhouse is where we played and uh, a, a little girl called uh, sloan stevens played another little girl called laura robson um in a most fantastic match on a sunny day and all the crowds came out from the stadium of the men's event to come and crowd around this junior match. And, <laughs> and that was a fantastic moment for me because, you know, yeah, yeah. You put the event on and look what happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had so many great memories and um, gr gr great, great moments in many yeah. ways. And 
you know, players that I've worked with, seeing them still playing, some of them, um, uh, coaches, people that I coach doing well in coaching. Yeah, it's been great. And why did you move out, out of tennis? What, why, why at that time after so long? Um, so so I, I'd, as part of my personal development, I, I'd started to look outside tennis to see what other sports were doing. And, um, and I'd started to uh, get involved in the, in the Premier League um, and doing some work for them and having some development opportunities for the Premier League. <clears throat> and, and through that, um, I developed a relationship with Chelsea Football Club. Um, and the, the relationship grew basically and, yeah. and, and an opportunity arose for me um, and, and it was amazing it was amazing one actually um, I, I was working with a coach in, in, in Chelsea and he, he, he was coaching the under 23 team um, and uh, you know he's actually now in the first team uh, a fantastic coach a fantastic coach and and the team got to the semi-final of the uh basically it's the the uh, under 19 champions league yep. um, and we were playing barcelona in in, in geneva uh, and i went with the team and on the on the uh, on the plane i was talking to the coach about uh how we would prepare players mentally to play matches and he said to me um I want you to give the team talk. So <laughs> two days later, I'm standing in front of, you know, the, I'm, I'm, and, and in the team, I mean, the Billy Gilmore, you know, yeah. people like that. that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm giving them the team talk before they play Barcelona in the semi-final of the Champions League. Well, anyway, we won the match 2-1 on penalties. Um, and that was a turning point for me because, yeah. they, you know, there was more interest more interest in, in, in me and my interest in them grew a bit. And then I thought, well, I have the opportunity here. And if I don't take this now, I probably won't have that opportunity again. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I completely love tennis, as you can guess, and loved working with, my, with everybody. I never saw just the LTA. It was everybody. I love loved yeah. tennis people. But this was an opportunity for me that I, that I thought if I don't take this opportunity now, I'll, I'll probably miss out on, you know, a lot, a lot of experiences. So that's what happened. And then since that time I left and, um, and, and things have grown in other areas as well. So I'm, you know, enjoying it. I actually enjoying my tennis more than ever. Oh yeah. You're playing. Funny yeah. Funny enough. That's good. And in terms of, as your lens has changed, to now look from the outside in rather than the inside in. How, how has your perception changed of, of British tennis? Um, gen generally as a sport or the, or the competition, competition side? I guess, I, guess it, I guess the culture, the more specifically to, to British tennis. Yeah. Um, well, it was fascinating COVID, wasn't it? How, how uh, yeah. tennis was a sport that actually pressed on uh, mm. and um, proved itself to be very valuable. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that, that that's very interesting. Um, you know, re, re, <laughs> you know, things that things that I really don't like was how, you know, some of our players were baited by the media to make comments yep. 
again in the French Open. They're baited. They are. They then yeah. you know it's and then and then only what they say is reported. Yeah, uh, that hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know. I remember when Patrice Hagelard, the French director, came over and worked for us for a while. You know, what one of one of his th things he, I remember him saying is that the media is a conspiracy in the UK. <laughs> Yeah. it's conspiracy i mean there's some really good i mean there's some really good reporters out there i thoroughly yeah. enjoying reading them but so that hasn't changed i don't like that yeah um uh, and you know you have a good we have a good tournament then it's all shiny and if you have a bad tournament then it's not so yeah. shiny and it, i don't think those things will ever change yeah. um, I, I would like to see more opportunities for younger players to play um for less cost basically yeah. Uh, however we do that as you as we talked about earlier yeah. creating the right reactions not the wrong reactions but fundamentally yeah. making the sport more open to young talented kids that can play more often um and i don't think that's cracked yeah actually i don't think that's cracked yeah. um yeah do you feel and i have to apologize because i've kind of but i i don't think i could have you on the podcast without asking some of the questions i've asked but i've probably put you in a position of like I would imagine working in the positions that you have where it always from the outside feels as if you have, you're almost on the defense a lot. It's like, there's a lot of, they're almost justifying a lot of, a lot of people putting, putting you in different situations. Do you feel freer in the mind now that it's not kind of this constant intense bubble? Um, well, it's a great question that is. And, and, and the answer is no. Okay. Actually. Um, because, you know, I'll say this with sincerity. I really cared about the game mm -hmm. and the people outside the LTA. Yeah. You, you know, I really, I really cared about them. And, you know, I, I did my best for them. But I also understood the governing body. And I still understand the governing body. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's difficult in there. And, and you know, some they, they might f sound defensive at times, but it's... You know, it's it's just a human it's a human reaction. Um, but I don't feel free. I would say the things that I'm saying on this podcast. You know, uh, anyway, I'd say this yeah. over, over the years. I don't sort of have left and thinking. Oh, now I'm going to speak out, and I feel a lot freer to do it. No, I, these are my beliefs that I've always had about the game, and I still remain. I still have those beliefs, and I know how hard people work in the organisation, and I know how hard how tough it is for coaches outside as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really, really, really tough, yeah. tough existence. And yeah. that's never changed for me. But don't forget that I started my career with nine years as a private coach on an outdoor club. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I was working outdoors in Cardiff in the wind and the rain. And like most coaches, you know, seven days a week. So I was kind of felt of great empathy for the sport there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I think where the question probably comes from from me my reflection on even myself as 10 and a half years as director of an international tennis academy is there's been times I've felt on the defense. I think because naturally as you get into a, a position of more responsibility, you know, more questions are asked. 
there's more people want to talk to you. You know, I was certainly guilty in my early days here of, you know, head down. And I think probably tennis coaches can understand this head down at the end of the day on the phone. So then they, they, they stay clear from maybe the parents that are going to attack them. And what I've learned to do, I guess, in, in my relatively micro level compared to an organization like the LTA is to communicate better. If there is something that, you know, I'm not in a position to talk to people, then I let people know that that's not the right time to talk to me or, you know, or I'll, you know, front up conversations a lot more and have much more difficult and open and honest conversations. And that's definitely released some of that, or if not all of that for me. So I guess just looking in, on a, on a bigger scale, it sometimes feels that that might be the situation for people well, in responsibility. Well, absolutely. I mean, well, and well said, Dan. And and you and you know what you've just articulated is is the same in all industries and in all people's careers and 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 way they go. From the communication perspective, though, th those that would know me in the LTA, I always had this rule that I would return a call within a day and return an email within a day. Yeah. So, so I, I I left with my head held high that I never. Yeah never not returned anything yeah, it's good. Um, and, and even when people were challenging me about something um, I got back to them I mean somebody even criticized me on Twitter once yeah. uh, and I, I tracked them down communicated them and invited them into the National Tennis Center yeah. uh, and shared with them an experience that was very valuable to them so you know I, I, that's I mean, I might not have known, I might have been crap at other aspects, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's something no, but, that I left, I, I, you know, I left with my head held high. Well done. And I, I'm pleased I asked that question because I think the the story you've just told there, Simon, I think is very valuable to, to coaches and people listening as well. So thanks for sharing. My last question for you before we have our traditional quick fire round oh and control the controllables. What's the future for Simon Jones? Um, well, so, so in the world that I'm in, I mean, the, the contracts in football, well, they go season by season. Okay. So, um, you, you know, I, I've got four, uh, four major projects going at the moment. Um, one is uh, head of um, coach development at the academy. And I'm also the, uh, the coaching strategy advisor for the Premier League. Yeah. Um, I'm the performance advisor for the Chelsea Women's FC, uh, and I also have a private business of um, maintaining 13 mentees in a, in a, in a coaching mentoring basis. So um, I'm very busy right now um, and, and enjoying it very much. Um, if they, 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 if they continue, they'll continue. <laughs> yeah. um, if, if they don't continue, I'm not, you know, I'll have to cross that bridge when I come to it. Um, I, I mean, I love tennis. I love my involvement in tennis. I was at the National Tennis Centre yesterday talking to Nigel Sears and to Jamie yeah. Delgado and to Louis Caillé, and I was hitting a, hitting a few balls myself with my my, my semi-Western forehand grip. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I love tennis. Um, my contracts are good at the moment, for the moment. I'm very much enjoying it, want to stay healthy. Um, and, but I definitely want to keep in touch with tennis. Maybe it'll do a full circle and you'll end up back at your club in Cardiff coaching on those outdoor courts. Uh, maybe. Now, 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 yeah, maybe. Now that there's no toll on the Seven Bridge, I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> it could be the way forward. And what's the future for tennis? Um, uh, well, gee, I mean, I, I think the future for tennis uh, and 
what, what, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, what's the future for anything? Um, um, look, I, I, tennis is a fantastic sport. I mean, it's got grace, aggression, passion, style, uh, technique, eight to 80 years of age. It's one of the best sports for keeping you fit. It's one of the great social sports. I, I mean, honestly, it, it, it's gonna, it's got enduring qualities that we probably don't realize when we work in it. I think the future for it though, is we've got to try and get it to communities and to people that currently would not even think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I'm not talking about competitors here. Competitors might come out of that, Dan, and yeah. that would be fantastic. But, you know, working in uh, the, the work I do in the Premier League around inclusion and diversity, I mean, you know, um, a diverse work workforce comes out of an inclusive approach. It's not the other way around. So yeah. when people want diversity in the workforce, you've got to have an inclusive workplace first. Um, and tennis as a sport is it would be wonderful if it was more inclusive. Um, and then we would have more diversity and then it would be open to more audiences to share the passion that people like you and I have about have about our sport. Basically, you're, you're so I'm good. You are. I tell you, I, I put I pushed you. You went you, 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 you it was a slight stumble and you've just <laughs> given this blinking perfect answer. Oh, I, I, I tell you what, you're that's good. what I'd love to see. That, you know, I'd that's, love to it's a great answer. Yeah. I'd, it's an absolutely brilliant answer. Quick fire round. Okay. I need some music to, this is, I need to start producing it better and get some music into this, you know? Well, like who wants to be a millionaire just to build the drama? I actually, the questions are a bit naff, so don't worry about it. I'm not coming at you too hard here. Tennis or, tennis or football? Uh, tennis. Centralized approach or decentralized? Uh, Decentralized. Singles or doubles? Singles. Tobs or orange ball? Wow. Now that's a good question. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with tarps. I asked that just in case you hadn't talked about it earlier. So that was then gonna be my ego in to being able to talk about it. I have to say that. <laughs> I have to say I don't know I don't know what the draws are like now because it was quite a few years ago. But at the yeah. time, the draw in Tarbs is always better than the draw in, in Orange yeah. It's I think Tarbs has still got, I would give it the edge. It's, it's, it's just an unbelievable event, isn't it? Yeah. Talk about inspiring people into tennis or well, obviously a good level to play. Um, serve or return? Uh, return. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. And one rule that you would change in tennis? Um speeding the game up very good that was quick that's the quickest yes. quick fire we've had speeding the game up it, 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 you know now now i'm in football yeah. and i watch tennis i'm going come on play yeah, slow it is play whereas when i was in it dan i didn't notice it yeah yeah but oh come on play stop fiddling around with your towel get going yeah. want to see some action you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get, your, get your pants out your bum rafa come yeah, on, come on. <laughs> Buy, buy, some, buy some bigger pants or something. I mean, seriously. <laughs> He's been going for 15 years. Not it's been... You're, not, you're it's, not luring me into the... <laughs> it's been brilliant seeing you, Simon, and also fantastic to talk to you. Thanks so much for giving, giving your time up and, and for sharing such fantastic insight. My pleasure, Dan. Real pleasure to speak to you.
Good luck, stay healthy, and all the best. Thank you. Big thank you to Simon Jones for, for coming on the show, giving his time, sharing his passion, sharing his views. Hope you guys enjoyed enjoyed that episode. Uh, I would imagine that it's opened up some thoughts. I would imagine that some people will agree with Simon, some people won't. And, and I guess that's the beauty, the beauty of our sport. But I also hope that it's the beauty of podcasts because... I do think with articles and stories, we can just look at the headline. Whereas with the podcasts, we can get down into the the context of an opinion, the context of the reasons of why why things happen, why things are done. And, And one thing that I have to say is, and agree with Simon, is there's a lot of great people that work in all organizations that absolutely have their heart in the right place. You know, when you're working for a big federation, especially a one that has such a monopoly on tennis as it does in the UK, there's there's always going to be people looking at both sides of the argument and some people that are happy and some people that aren't. Uh, but I, I'm still left with that question in my head, is why in Britain do we rely so much on the National Federation? You know, is that just the way it is? Is it time for us to actually look at that a little bit different and go, well, actually, look at all these other countries around the world. And I know that the economics is slightly different in Spain, but come on, it's not that much different. It's not that much different. And the federation isn't relied upon really at all in Spain. You know, it's down to individual people. It's down to teams of people that, that have strong accountability and building their own business, building their own success. And, and with that, in my opinion, that drives the extra 5-10% that gives people a chance to produce world-class tennis players on a consistent basis. And that's just something I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, guys. Uh, reach out. Uh, share your thoughts you know maybe we can we can do another podcast on that topic if you have any ideas of who you'd like to bring on Uh, but brilliant to have Simon on there Um, I'm excited for our next guest uh, Sergi Starkovsky who has been ranked as high as 31 in the world Uh, a very opinionated and if you if you google Sergi you will you will find lots of stories um, on him. Uh, we haven't done that recording yet, so I don't know exactly which direction he goes in, but that will be released on Saturday uh, coming up, and I'm fascinated to hear from him, so I'm excited to be bringing that to you. And I will also have my partner in crime, John McGann, with me for, for that podcast. Uh, he's been, as all of us in these times, he's had to get his head down to work on his own academy and uh, the podcast has had to take a little bit of a back step for him but hopefully he's going to be coming back into the next the next few podcasts and bringing his insight his humor and his passion back into so I'm looking forward to having him by my side but for now I'm Dan Kiernan my co-host is John McGann and we are Control the Controllables <laughs>